Have you ever traveled someplace and really enjoyed it? You just really liked where you were? And you said, man, I could definitely live in a place like this. I think probably all of us have done that from time to time, and it could be any number of places or any number of circumstances. We just, we just like it so much that we think, man, I, I could just do this a lot. I would, just, I would just love doing this. But you know, I, I was actually going through that thought process one time, and I was actually standing in a stream fly fishing when I did it, and there were several other fishermen up and down the stream and thought, man, I, I could live here. This would, this would just be all right with me. And then I got to thinking, I wonder how many of these other fishermen are actually from here or if they're from somewhere else. And I knew the answer to that. They're probably most every one of them from somewhere else. So where are the locals? Where are the, the natives? Where are the people who... Who, who live here? Well, they're at work, and they're in school, and they're at the grocery store, and they're doing yard work, and they're, they're at the ball field and on the golf course. They're, they're just doing life. You know, people who are traveling think differently than do the locals, Right? You just do. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of looking at things, although you're in the very same place that they are. But that's just how it is. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought a second, okay? Just just hang on to that. And I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to you to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to me to follow Jesus? Now, not everyone's going to answer that question in exactly the same way. There will be some different answers given to that. For, for some people, they're going to say, well, you know, it, it gives me direction and purpose in my life. It allows me to be something, a part of something that is bigger than me. It, it helps to, to validate meaning and worth to me to be a follower of Jesus. Some might say something like it, it just it just it rounds out my life. You know, I, I've got my career, I've got my family, I've got my recreation, I, I've got all of these parts of my life, and now I have this spiritual side, and it just it just rounds it all out for me. Or you may say it means that, that I'm going to heaven. Just different things that people would say in response to that question. Now tonight we're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to be turning there. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to begin our reading in verse 4. We're going to take this all the way through verse 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, for behold, I am laying in Zion... Let me read it from up here. Laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The first thing I want you to take notice of is how he addresses these people in verse 11. He calls them exiles and sojourners. If you look over in verse 1 of chapter 1, when he first addresses this letter, he addresses it to elect exiles. Now when you look at other translations, you, saw, you find wording like, Temporary residents and foreigners, wayfarers, pilgrims, refugees, aliens, or as the Bible in basic English expresses it, those for whom this world is a strange country, travelers, not residents. And remember, Travelers look at things differently than do the locals, right? And as a follower of Jesus, we are exiles and sojourners. And so it should not surprise us then that what it means to us to be a Jesus follower might look a little different. And I think Peter addresses this for us in this text to tell us that. And so to begin with, if I am a Jesus follower, I am embracing what the world rejects. Notice how he begins there in verse 4. As you come to him. A couple of phrases in, in this text that we've read are, that are rather interesting. As you come to him, even to phrase it that way is, is interesting, isn't it? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And we say, I'm going to take you up on that invitation, and I am going to come to you. You are coming to him, a living stone rejected by men. Now, I want you to understand that the rejection of Jesus was not simply something that happened in his day. It continues to happen down to this very day. Jesus is being rejected continually. Now, this, this rejection was a very significant point in Jesus' life. It was something that was prophesied 
Remember the great prophecies from Isaiah chapter 53? He was despised and rejected of men. And in the text we have read, Peter calls on three prophecies, two from Isaiah, a third one from the Psalms, to tell us that Jesus is rejected. Here's another phrase I want you to notice with me. Verse 6. Now this is reading from the English Standard Version. Does this, this sounds a little unusual, doesn't it? For it stands in Scripture. Not, not Scripture says, or it is written in Scripture. It stands in Scripture. You may be reading from a translation that says it is contained in Scripture. I think Peter is emphasizing a point here that this is a reality in regard to Jesus, God's own Son, He is rejected. You see it in prophecy. You see it in Jesus' own experience. Multiple illustrations of this in the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll look at two very quickly. One's Luke chapter 4. For whatever reason, Luke chooses that the first event from the ministry of Jesus that he relays in his gospel is Jesus' visit to Nazareth to go to the synagogue. You remember? And oh, they're so glad to see him. Hometown boy. And they're anxious to hear him. And they they wondered at the gracious words coming from his lips. It was just such a good, heartfelt, heartwarming experience until Jesus said the wrong thing. And man, they turned on a dime, and now they wanted him dead. And they attempted to take him outside the town and throw him off of a cliff. Rejection. Or how about John 6? John 6 opens with this great multitude of people coming to find Jesus. And they find him. And he preaches to them. That's not an unusual scenario at all. But by the time you get to the end of Jesus' sermon in John 6, verse 66, therefore many disciples turned back and followed him no longer. Rejection. Of course, there could be no greater rejection than nailing a man to a cross, could there? His experience was to be rejected. He even taught about this rejection. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33, not 34, 33 is the parable that we know as the parable of the wicked tenants. A man, a wealthy man had a vineyard, and he, he, in in our modern day terms, he, he leased it out to some people with the agreement that he would get produce from the vineyard. And so it starts producing. He sends a servant to collect his share, and the, the, the servants kick, or, or yeah, the people with the vineyard kick him out. So he sends another servant. They do the same thing. Finally, the man says, I know, I'll send my son. And they'll have to, they'll have to send me my share. And the son comes, and they kill him. This was one parable that the, the scribes and Pharisees had no trouble interpreting. They, they missed the vast majority of them, but not this one. 
They knew Jesus was talking about them and their rejection of him as God's son. We are embracing what the world rejects. I know some of you are old enough to remember, others of you are too young to remember, but maybe you have seen the film footage as the Twin Towers, it turns out, were getting ready to fall. You remember the people escaping from the towers? They were, they, were, you know, they were just covered in ash and all kinds of stuff, and they were running, they were running, they were running to try to get away. But there was a small group of people who were going to. It was the first responders. It was a remarkable thing. But that's the very picture that Peter is, is, is painting for us here. You are coming to what the world is going away from. You are coming to and embracing Jesus. The world rejects him. But beware. There's more to, there are more ways to reject Jesus than to say, no thank you, Jesus. The reason Jesus was rejected in his day is because those people had an idea of what they thought the coming Messiah was going to be like. They were expecting the Messiah to come. And they had in their minds what this man was going to look like, what he was going to do, what, what, he, would, what he would accomplish in his ministry. And Jesus came along and he didn't fit the bill at all. Not even close. They didn't like him. And you know what? There are a lot of people today, when they are introduced to Jesus Christ, they see some aspects of him, his teaching, what he came to bring into this world, and they really don't like that. And they want to they change him the world now as we talk about world here i'm not talking about the globe i'm not talking about the planet earth but the world in the sense of those who occupy the earth their attitudes their thinking their beliefs their behaviors the world you know when john says love not the world that's what he's talking about. Don't fall in love with this life here on this planet and how it's carried out. And it's the world that rejects Jesus. You want to know why the world rejects Jesus? Here's what John says. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or as Paul words it in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, in describing Satan, he is the God of this world. Now why in the world would we want to take Jesus and, and, and try to manipulate him into something that is more acceptable to the world? It makes no sense. There's no, 
there's no questioning about what the world's estimate of Jesus is. It stands in Scripture. He is rejected. So why would we embrace what is so broadly and widely rejected in the world? Because he is chosen and precious to God. That's reason enough. That's all the reason we need. To know that about Jesus, I embrace Him, though the world rejects Him. So, what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? I'm embracing what the world is rejecting. Peter also tells us that it means that I am a living stone in God's house. Now this is obviously tied to what is said about Jesus here as being the cornerstone. That chosen and precious, this living cornerstone. And we are living stones that go into the construction of God's house. Now, I know you're aware of this, but construction practices in ancient times are different than construction practices today. And that's for a wide variety of reasons. But back then... The way you built a building, a structure, a house, you started with a cornerstone. And that cornerstone had to be precisely hewn so that all of the angles were 90 degrees. Everything was just, all the lines were straight. Everything was just right. Because everything came from that. Everything was aligned with that. All the angles were measured from that. Everything was based on that cornerstone. And Jesus in God's spiritual house is the cornerstone and you and I are the living stones that comprise that, that the building material of that house. Which means a number of things. One of those is, is that every one of those stones have to be oriented and aligned with Jesus. That's the most important thing. Another thing that means is that there is a lot of cohesion and togetherness among the stones themselves, right? Those One of the problems that we have, I think, being followers of Jesus in America is the danger of us adopting a spirit or attitude that is genuinely American. And that is of rugged individualism. In the minds of many people, that's the ideal. The rugged individual. They do it all on their own. Don't have to have help. I don't need anybody. I can do it myself. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Now, granted, 
so much of what made this country possible, the Western expansion and all that kind of stuff, it, it was based on people who were rugged individualists, no doubt about it. That does not translate into the Lord's church. It absolutely does not. The picture in the New Testament is, is that a part of the body of Christ, well, it's, it's a body. And a body is comprised of various members of that body. And while those different members, I mean, just you look at the physical body. That's what Paul did. You, you just take the physical body. And you can take any member of that body. He used the ear and the eye and the hand and the foot. You remember that? They're a part of the body. They have different functions. They, they look different than the other parts of the body. But it's all one. And, and, and what if you try to do the whole rugged individualist with the part of your body? That, that's, not a good, that's not a good thing. Do you know what it's called when in your body at that cellular level, if there are cells that are acting independently? There's a word for it. It's called cancer. The body it is a spiritual house. And all of those stones fit together they go together to build this house that is God's house the implication of that is this is a place that God is going to occupy are there any houses that you wouldn't live in uh, when our son and, and and his wife they got married while they were at Freed Hardeman going to school <clears throat> and what what the school offered for married housing, let's just say it was lacking a little bit. There was this old farmhouse that apparently had been there since the college was uh, begun. I mean, old. Two-frame, or, or two-story frame old farmhouse. And that thing, as a matter of fact, they lived in it for about a year and the school finally decided, we gotta tear this thing down. So it doesn't even, it's not even there anymore. Dalton and Mary called it the slug house because there were so many slugs that were in that house. It was awful. I could just imagine what the response would be if I told Tanya, hey, Tanya, I've got a house for us to, to move into. And I took her to that place. <laughs> this ain't happening. <clears throat> there are houses that we would not occupy. We are a spiritual house. Are we a house that God wants to occupy? That's a question worth asking and pondering. But not only am I a living stone in the construction of this house, if I am a Jesus follower, I am also a priest in God's spiritual house. I am a priest. A priest who offers up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I don't know what comes to your mind when you, you hear those words. 
We have a phrase that we try to summarize this teaching of Scripture with, and it's the priesthood of all believers. So let's, let's start at the tail end of that statement. Believers. Are you a believer? I want to see hands. Okay. I noticed that those were not all adult hands. I noticed those weren't all male hands. The priesthood of all believers. That means that every one of us, male or female, adult or youth, or however you want to say it, we have spiritual sacrifices to offer. Now part of our problem is, I'm afraid, that we have come to think in terms of offering sacrifice to God in terms of our public worship. Many times exclusively. It's when the church comes together in, for Valley View, this room on this day of the week, at the given hours, that spiritual sacrifices are being offered up to God. Well, when you think about what's going on here and the way that it transpires, who would you say the priests are? I'm just asking. I'm not suggesting that that we need to change about how we conduct our worship services. What I'm suggesting is we need to change the way we think about worship. Because if we're thinking that worship happens here exclusively, we, we couldn't be any more wrong. We just couldn't. Because you and I are to be continually offering up sacrifices to God. I want to look at a couple of other passages here. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present, look at this, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Are you telling me that you're offering your body as a spiritual sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God simply because you place it in a pew in this room at the given hour on the given day? I don't think that's what he's talking about. God has embodied us all. You're not a body with a soul. You are a soul that has a body. And with that body... God sees it as you are to be offering up your body as a living sacrifice to God. How often are you apart from your body? Now, if you're having out-of-body experiences, I really don't want to hear about it, but the point is, we're not. We're not apart from our body. And there's never a time that the way we use this body that God has given us is not the opportunity for it to be offered to Him as a spiritual sacrifice. Here's another passage, Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So, from what comes out of our mouth is a sacrifice offered to God. I have to confess that I have thought of this verse primarily in terms of singing. That's true. 
it does apply. But it certainly isn't exclusive to that. Did you catch the phrase where he talked about us proclaiming the excellencies of God? That that praise is to be continually on our lips? That we speak of God and we proclaim His goodness in our lives? And the great things that He has accomplished that we are able to enjoy and be blessed by, these are sacrifices that we as priests are continually offering up to God. If I am a Jesus follower, I am a priest. If I'm a Jesus follower, I am a member of a race, a nation, a people. Now, we have, have ways of identifying ourselves on, on different levels, I guess we could say. Uh, I have identity based upon who my mom and dad are and who their parents are. Like every one of you, we are all a part of a lineage, a physical lineage. And that's part of my identity. Have you ever been identified that way? Oh, you're, you're Don and Mary Deffenbaugh's son? Or the other way around? Oh, you're Alyssa and Dalton's dad. That, that lineage identifies us. It's a sense of identity. It's also a sense of identity of, of, of our, our nationality, right? American. We, t- we take identity from that. I am American. This morning... Just off of the top of my head, I also knew that in our assembly there there was a Samoan and a New Zealander and a Laotian. Now, they're all Americans. They all have American citizenship, but do you think they take any identity from that nationality of origin? You know they do. There is identity that is based on ethnicity. Caucasian, Hispanic, African-American. Well, what about those who aren't American? Negroes, generally speaking. Asian. Do we take identity from that? Well, yes, we do. And what's remarkable is is that Peter uses all three of those ideas to describe what we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. You know, the New Testament talks about in Christ, we are a new creation. We're familiar with that language and that terminology. Most of the time, we think of that in terms of the individual. I am a new creature in Christ. I was something, but now I am something else because of what I've become in Christ. But what Peter tells us is that it's much broader than that as well. So you have all of these nationalities You all have all of these families with their lineages that go generation after generation after generation. You have all of these ethnicities. God says, guess what? 
I'm making brand new. You have a brand new lineage. You have a brand new race. You have a brand new nationality. And it's all found in Christ. Peter obviously is borrowing language from the book of Exodus. This is when the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai. First got there in Exodus 19. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, a people for God's own possession, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what God wanted for these descendants of Abraham. I'm going to make a nation, a people out of you. And that's what he's doing with us in Christ Jesus. So you go all the way to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation in chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is the people, God's people. That's what identifies me. But you know what happens. It's always been this way. That we take those identifying marks that are true of all humanity and we make them reasons to divide and to separate and to elevate one above another whether it's based on are you of the right family are you of the right race are of you the right nationality it's been going on forever and you know what god says not in my kingdom ever because i'm making you something new if I'm a Jesus follower, I am of this new race, nation, and people. And so, there are some things that follow very quickly. I have been transferred from darkness into light. I mean, that, that's what, what Peter says, that you're transferred out of darkness into light. This world of whom Satan is the God, little g, it's a world of darkness. And as Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, thanks be to God that he has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Because I am a Jesus follower. I have received mercy. You were once without mercy, now you have mercy. I wish we had the time to go back and spend a little time with Hosea. You remember Hosea? The man whom God told to go marry a prostitute. And he did. 
and she ran off on him. Surprise, surprise. And God said, go get her back. And he did. And they had children. And they named those children exactly what God told them to name them. And one of them was named No Mercy. And another one of them was named Having Mercy. You once were without mercy, you now have mercy. You know, there, it, there's a day coming. Don't know how soon. It may be before this day is over. It may not be for another millennia. Who knows? It could be a long time away. But what we do know is that when that day comes, everyone who has ever lived is only going to care about one thing. Just one. Everybody. You think about all the things you've cared about in your life, and you think about people in other cultures and other nations at other times who have cared about a lot different things than you've ever cared about. It doesn't matter. Everyone is only going to care about one thing, and that one thing is... The mercy of God. And won't care about anything else. But as one who is a Jesus follower, I once was without mercy, I now have mercy. Finally, he brings it down to an exceedingly practical level and says, make sure that your conduct among the Gentiles is honorable. Make sure you are living your life in such a way that people who are in darkness, people who have no mercy, people who aren't following Jesus, look at you and they say, man, that is strange. You don't do what other people do, and you do what other people don't do, and you talk differently than other people talk. You have different attitudes, you have different values. What's up with you? Keep your conduct honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, what does it mean to you to be a Jesus follower? You may have one answer, but if we think long and hard about what it means to be a traveler, an exile, sojourner, we may have a very different answer. And Peter tells us what it means. Let's bow together.
Father, we're grateful for this day. We're grateful for this time to be together tonight, and we're grateful for the letter of 1 Peter. Father, we desperately need the reminders that this, this world is not our home, that we are passing through as exiles and sojourners. And help us put to the forefront of our minds that in following your Son, that we're embracing what the world rejects. Father, that, that we are the, the stones that build the house that you desire to occupy, and we serve as priests in that house. And we are of that, that race, that nation, that people that you have made through Jesus Christ. Father, help us to always take our identity from him, in whose name we pray. Amen.